This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Keep the conversation going off the air. Your voice matters. Email feedback at AMI.ca or connect with us on Twitter at AMI-audio and let us know what you think about our programming. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voices to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. Why a Nova Scotia community is still looking for the killer of a beloved farmer three decades on. In 2017, the Nova Scotia government and the RCMP offered a $150,000 reward for any information about Elmer Yule's murder that led to an arrest. The money remains unclaimed. Paul Berry reads Murder in Old Barns by Lindsay Jones. Lindsay Jones is a freelance journalist based in Halifax. She writes for Maclean's, The Globe and Mail, and the CBC. Her work has also appeared on Topic.com. I'm Paul Berry. This is an article titled Murder in Old Barns by Lindsay Jones from the June issue of The Walrus. It was still dark on October 26, 1991, when Elmer Ewell slid from beneath the patchwork quilt as his wife Hazel slept. The 77-year-old dairy farmer went out to do the barn chores as he did every morning. In rubber boots, he crunched across frost-laden grass, Becky, the black lab, at his heel. At 4.30 a.m., Todd Carlton, the farmhand, found Ewell face down on the concrete. His body was still warm. I tried to shake him and wake him up, said Carlton. What he didn't see in that moment of shock before running into the house to call for help was that Ewell had been shot, execution style, in the back. Twenty minutes later, the ambulance arrived at Elm Knoll Farm in the community of Old Barnes, Nova Scotia. The paramedics were still pumping Ewell's chest as they raced him to the hospital in the nearby town of Truro. In the waiting room, police delivered the grim news to Hazel. At first, she thought it had been an accident, that Ewell had been struck by a stray round. After all, hunting season had just begun. But when doctors removed not one but two tic-tac-sized bullets, the truth became clear. Two bullets are no accident. Two bullets are murder. Carlton, seventeen at the time, had stayed behind, after working at the farm for several years, he knew the sixty swollen udders in the barn couldn't go ignored for long. He ran down the highway in search of help. At the first farm, John Blauendrat roused himself from bed where he was resting after back surgery and hobbled to his truck. Ewell was a man beloved for his generosity, a tractor ride for local kids, free milk for the family in a tar-paper shack, a home for the nephew escaping a turbulent life. There wasn't a farmer in the countryside who wouldn't do anything for Ewell. Inside the barn, Blauendrat noted something odd. On a wooden step were five or six brown beer bottles. Curious items, out of place. Ewell never drank and was fastidious about the state of his barn. 
Twenty-nine years later, no one has been held accountable for Ewell's murder. This despite the RCMP using nearly every investigative tool at its disposal, including forensic specialists, criminal profiles, search warrants, and years-long surveillance efforts. Extensive interviews with family members, friends, reporters, witnesses, and former RCMP officers, along with more than 1,000 pages of police and court documents, have helped me piece together a picture of an unsolved crime whose randomness, location, and unlikely victim destroyed a family's farming legacy and ripped the roots out of a community. It's hard not to be struck by how much was done to find those responsible and how little was accomplished. In 2017, the Nova Scotia government and the RCMP offered a $150,000 reward for any information that led to an arrest. The money remains unclaimed. Chris Paley, the now-retired RCMP investigator who oversaw the case for seven years in the 1990s, is tormented by it. Horrific crimes happen all the time, he says. But this one, a farmer in his late years minding his farm in the early morning hours being murdered, that's just terrible. Now 65, pink-skinned and bald, with an open face that betrays a certain sadness, Paley says this was the only homicide in his three decades as a cop that didn't result in a charge. So many things went wrong in this investigation, he laments. These guys weren't rocket scientists, he says, referring to the killers. It just seemed that luck was on their side. The shock over the murder had a great deal to do with the victim, the gentle patriarch of a centuries-old family farm. Elmer Dunlap Ewell was born on July 30, 1914. The first of eleven children, he grew up in the white-gabled farmhouse that sits back from the road alongside Cobequid Bay. Like many boys of his day, Ewell left school after grade eight to work. During the Great Depression, his father took a seasonal construction job that brought him to various parts of the community, and from his teenage years onward, Ewell ran the farm when his father was gone. People who didn't know us thought that he was our dad, says Georgina Lawson, the youngest of Ewell's sisters, 15 years his junior. Ewell drove his siblings to town for ice cream. He liked orange pineapple best and helped collect the children from school by horse and sleigh during winter storms. As his sisters grew into young women, it was he who waited outside the local dance halls, leaning against his truck to take them home. On Georgina's wedding day, Ewell gave her away. Ewell ran a farm unlike any in the countryside. Cars would pull off the highway to photograph the tidy, picturesque barnyard. Farmers often stopped by for advice. Years of milking by hand had muscled up his forearms. Either too busy or too shy for a serious relationship, Ewell was single until midlife. During a game of bridge one day, Ewell's sister Norma heard her friend Hazel say that she'd always wanted to live on a farm. You've got to meet my brother, Norma exclaimed. Two years later, Hazel and Ewell were married in a Baptist church. They had no children, but by then Ewell had already helped raise his siblings and kids were always underfoot, flocking to see him pull a funny face or, from his pocket, a peppermint. The farmer had a sweet spot for his nephew, Ewell McGregor. The boy summered on the farm until one August. When he was eleven, he refused to go home to his troubled life in Toronto, to the father who had sold his coin collection to buy booze and who left his mother's arms ringed with bruises. McGregor stayed on the farm for a year and then returned again permanently when he was sixteen. 
Yule taught him how to sharpen an axe, drive a tractor, birth a calf, and use a scythe to hack Scottish thistle. He changed my direction in life, MacGregor, now fifty-eight, tells me, sobbing. He was the only father I have ever known. It seems a cruel twist that much of the land Yule's forebears were granted more than 250 years ago now sits empty. Acadian settlers lived here peacefully among the Mi'kmaq for several decades until the mid-1700s, when the British forced the Acadians out, plundering and burning their homes. When the Yule family arrived from Boston in 1765, the only buildings left standing were a few old barns. The name stuck. Nearly three decades after the murder, the name comes back to haunt. Yule's old barn is paint-chipped and ramshackle, with letters missing from the Elm Knoll Farm sign. A rusty weather vane creaks. The silo stands like a sepulchre. Yule's murder remains the worst thing the community has ever seen. A respected farmer gunned down in the twilight of his life on his own land. The community is small, probably no more than 200 residents, and some officers working the case knew Yule from church, from nods on the road into town, or because his kinfolk were so numerous and had such deep roots. The investigation appeared doomed from the start. By the time police designated the barn a crime scene, it was too late. It had already been contaminated by a troop of neighbors that arrived to help with chores. But the pressure to solve Yule's murder ratcheted up with each passing day, as police teams combed the fields and brooks for evidence. The RCMP began a monumental search for the murder weapon. They sifted through a massive manure pile outside the barn with a backhoe and pushed several thousand bales of hay from one end of the barn to the other. Divers scoured the pond inside the abandoned plumhole lumber mill. And as if people weren't already on edge, Blauendrat recalls that a surveillance team began to watch Elm Knoll Farm. The police presence didn't ease the paranoia. Residents began locking their doors. Farmers stopped milking alone. Trick-or-treating was cancelled. The RCMP, meanwhile, came up empty. They knew of no motive because Ewell had no enemies. Did the farmer witness a drug drop? Was it a hunter sleeping in the barn? The police bore down on every man in the countryside who had any connection to Ewell. They pulled over Randy Durling as he drove his old beater on the highway. Durling grew up in a tar-paper shack on a corner of Ewell's property. Police took him back to his camp, deep in the woods, and seized all of his guns. We went through hell, says Durling, about himself and his brother. Durling's boss told him not to come back to work cutting trees until the murder was solved. Cops also descended on David Leonerton who had been near the farm en route to ask Yule if he could hunt on his land the morning the farmer was shot. Police arrived as he was fixing pens in the pig barn at Truro's Agricultural College to question him a third time. What were you doing on the farm that early in the morning? Do you have any idea who did it? One of Yule's nephews, who had been in Maine with his family at the time of the murder, was interrogated for hours on end. Even Blauendrat, who could barely stand after his back surgery, was considered a suspect. In his kitchen, police demanded he lay all his guns out on the table. The farmhand, Todd Carlton, faced the same question multiple times. Did you ever wish Elmer dead? police asked. Eventually, Carlton agreed to a polygraph, something police asked many to do. 
The investigation stretched on for weeks, then months. The RCMP finally admitted it had no hard evidence to tie anyone to the shooting. Public frustration was palpable. You can only do so much with so little, said RCMP Staff Sergeant George Batt in a June 1992 newspaper interview, pleading with residents to come forward with information. You can't manufacture evidence. In July of that year, 150 people, nearly everyone in the community, turned out to a meeting hosted by the RCMP to unveil a poster promising up to $7,000 in reward money. A year later, leads tapered off. Fewer calls came into the RCMP, and eventually members of the eight-person investigative team were reassigned. It began to seem like it would never be solved. In October 1993, RCMP Sergeant Chris Paley took over the case as the area's new head of major crime. On his first day, his commanding officer sat him down. He had to do everything in his power to figure out who killed Elmer Ewell. By this time, investigators had taken more than 220 statements and accrued nearly 500 hours of overtime. One officer told the press that if they added up the costs, they would probably be staggering. The crime unit was angry over its lack of progress. Paley was equally frustrated. And he adds, there's no such thing as a perfect murder. Sooner or later, he thinks, DNA evidence or a witness will help solve it. There's always something left behind. Paley spent months digging through police documents. He re-evaluated interviews, reconsidered witness statements, reassessed leads. He came to understand that the case was not only solvable, but that his predecessors had actually come close to cracking it. The year before, as investigators began to cross names off their list of people of interest, they kept circling back to one young man, Dwayne DeVoe. A boxer who flipped burgers at McDonald's, DeVoe lived with his mother on the outskirts of Truro. It's unclear how police found their way to him. He had no community connection to Yule and thus would likely not have been on the police's immediate list of young men to question. DeVoe had an alibi. He had partied with a friend the night before Ewell's murder, drinking in Truro until closing at 2 a.m. DeVoe told police he had been dropped off at home and had gone to bed around 3 a.m. Yet police began receiving tips that caused them to take a closer look at DeVoe. Redacted witness statements feature an individual who shares aspects of DeVoe's temperament and alibi. On the day Ewell was found dead, one witness described a suspect who, smiling and cocky during a game of pool at a Truro bar, called the farmer's death the perfect murder. The same suspect, according to another witness, said that the farmer had been shot in the back of the head or shoulder area and that no shells had been left behind. The suspect said it had happened in the barn, right where you walk in. Yet another witness shared that the same suspect had told him the barrel of the gun used against the farmer had been changed so it couldn't be traced. In the summer of 1992, police executed a search warrant at DeVoe's home. In his interview with me, Bernard, DeVoe's older brother, recalls that investigators found what they believed could be the weapon used in Ewell's murder, a disassembled twenty-two caliber rifle missing its barrel the part needed to trace the bullets retrieved from Ewell's body. According to Bernard, his mother grew suspicious of the attention DeVoe was receiving from the police and went to speak to them. A redacted statement with details consistent with DeVoe's alibi captures a conversation between RCMP officers and someone who appears to be the mother of a suspect. 
she explains she had tried different ways to see if I could find out what the suspect knew. Then came a breakthrough. In January 1993, RCMP traveled to PEI to gather a statement from DeVoe's cousin, Mark Petrie, who gave police information that tied DeVoe to the murder. Petrie told police that in the summer of 1991, months before Ewell's murder, DeVoe had pleaded with him to sell DeVoe his gun. He wanted to scratch off the serial number and use it for a heist. Petrie refused. Five months later, DeVoe explained to Petrie over beers how the farmer had been killed. Two men had robbed a store, DeVoe said, and to avoid police had hidden out in a barn. When the farmer came to investigate, he had a pitchfork. The guys confronted him, and one of them shot him. He was excited and right enthused about the whole thing, Petrie told police in a redacted statement he later authenticated with me. He figured it would never be solved because the police would never be able to connect the murder and the robbery because they really had nothing to do with each other. Petrie remembers that his cousin had, in fact, bragged to him about knowing who killed the farmer. It was a friend of his, DeVoe said, then speaking vividly about the angle at which the bullet had entered Ewell. He was pretty detailed about it, Petrie tells me. The only way you could be that detailed about it would be if you were there, in my opinion. As it happened, Truro police had been investigating an armed robbery that occurred hours before Ewell was murdered. At 10.15 p.m. on October 25, 1991, a store manager locked up the Ryan's IGA grocery store in Truro, about a 30-minute drive from Old Barnes. He was walking toward his car to make the Friday night deposit when he heard a shuffling of feet. A man with pantyhose over his face and socks on his hands bumped up against him, Put the money in the bag. I'll shoot you, the manager remembers the man saying, pointing a gun from his hip. The manager dropped the deposit into a navy, duffel-like bag, and the man bolted. Two weeks later, a similar bag and a sawed-off 16-gauge were found about a kilometer from the Ryan's IGA. Police believe it was the same weapon leveled at the store manager. A redacted document from December 1992 describes how, during questioning by the RCMP for the armed robbery, a suspect identifies the bag as his. A blue duffel bag is later included as evidence in a court document charging DeVoe for the crime. With Petrie's statement, the RCMP felt like it was finally on the right track and began a joint investigation with the town police. On March 5, 1993, according to Bernard DeVoe, the RCMP drove to the plastics plant in Truro, where his brother was working, and arrested him in connection with the murder of Elmer Yule and for the Ryan's IGA robbery. Redacted documents from an interrogation dated the next day include enough details of DeVoe's alibi to indicate him as the suspect being questioned. After more than 12 hours, DeVoe finally relents. He admits to robbing the store manager, saying it had been planned by a former employee of Ryan's IGA who had waited down the road on lookout. But the admission wasn't enough for his interrogator, a Truro police constable named Todd Taylor, and DeVoe's former boxing coach. I'll be straight up with you, Taylor says. If you can provide information leading to much bigger things than what you're involved in here, okay then, yes, things can happen. Ultimately, I'm looking for information as well on the murder of Elmer Yule, okay? Taylor presses. You weren't in the barn? No, never was, replies DeVoe. Taylor presses again. I think you know more about the Elmer Ewell murder than you're saying. 
Devoe appears to concede. Well, I would have to talk to my lawyer and all that before, you know. Taylor tells Devoe a solid case is being built against him for murder, warning you're going to have to tell us something that's going to change our mind of that, and explaining various scenarios in which Devoe could be eligible for manslaughter even if he weren't the one who pulled the trigger. Then, in a surprising admission, Devoe agrees to plead guilty to both the armed robbery and a murder three charge, or manslaughter. Police ultimately felt they did not have enough to convict Devoe for murder and instead charged him solely with the robbery. He would later plead not guilty despite having apparently confessed to the holdup. While nothing in the police document shows that the confession was disputed or recanted, there might have been grounds to challenge Devoe's interrogation as coercive. No lawyer appeared to be present. Different police officers questioned Devoe in two consecutive sessions, with the confession itself occurring in an unmonitored room. In the ensuing months, more evidence emerged that appeared to connect Devoe to the robbery. Clothes found near the scene on the night of the holdup included white high-top sneakers. Among the materials is a redacted report on those shoes that matches up with other documents charging Devoe with the robbery. After comparing the white high-tops to a pair of Devoe's winter boots, forensic specialists concluded they were likely worn by the same person. The trial was scheduled and dozens of witnesses lined up, including Devoe's mother, his now-deceased stepfather, and his cousin Mark Petrie. But in September 1993, during pretrial meetings, the Crown stayed the charges, meaning they decided against proceeding with the case but did not withdraw the charges. After hearing evidence from the police, the Crown believed DeVoe's involvement in Ewell's murder was far more extensive than he let on, and that pressing ahead with the robbery prosecution might harm any chance of assembling a bigger case against him. It was determined that it was in the best interest of the RCMP homicide investigation and the Crown's case to stay the charges, states a Truro police document. Stayed charges, however, can be reopened within a year, which is what the Crown did in the summer of 1994. The RCMP, meanwhile, were frustrated. The team had been mobilizing an undercover operation in B.C., where DeVoe had recently moved, and the reactivated armed robbery charge stymied this effort by forcing DeVoe to return to Nova Scotia. Redacted documents from that year, documents that include details that mirror the timeline of criminal proceedings against DeVoe, describe a late summer confrontation. They refer to a suspect who realized that someone he had confided in, tacitly admitting responsibility for the armed robbery and then expressing regret over a person he wished he hadn't had to do away with, spoke to police. Twice the suspect badgered that witness inside a Truro bar. I thought we were friends, the suspect said. I can't believe I trusted you. You'll get yours. Then later, don't worry, nothing will happen to you until after the trial. A trial by judge and jury on the robbery charge was set to take place in September 1996. But when DeVoe's counsel argued that to properly defend her client, information about Ewell's murder might need to come out in court, the Crown prosecutor grew concerned that such details could compromise their homicide investigation. That summer, the robbery charges were dropped. Paley stayed with the Truro Major Crimes Unit for another three years, but DeVoe was now ultra-cautious. He appears to have never breathed a word about the murder or the robbery to anyone ever again. His older brother, Bernard, 
says he has tried for nearly three decades to talk to him about what happened. If he didn't have any knowledge, my conversations with him would be a lot different, says Bernard. He'd be able to say, I don't know anything. He just can't even talk about it. He's a mess his whole life. I don't know if it would have been any different if this didn't happen, but he can't take care of himself. He drinks himself to death. To see a guy go that badly, there's something in there eating him. Early last December, DeVoe, who today lives in Milton, Ontario, collapsed in an alley. When first responders arrived, he had no pulse and wasn't breathing. In the hospital, he went into cardiac arrest a second time and was put into a medically induced coma. Bernard doesn't know whether it was the cocktail of drugs his brother had been given or whether he felt moved by the death scare to finally set the record straight. But when he woke up, DeVoe began to wail that he had to get to the airport, fly home to Truro, and get to the courthouse. He had to tell people what had really happened. I thought, oh man, he's finally going to say something, says Bernard. But when Bernard questioned him further, Bernard's wife cautioned him, don't upset your brother, he's going through enough. A year earlier, in December 2018, I had tracked down DeVoe in Milton myself. We met in a diner. He confirmed his arrest in 1993 for the armed robbery, and when I tried to summarize the narrative of events police had put together, he repeated his alibi for the night Ewell was shot. I was home in bed. He dropped me off at home and he went home, he said, referring to a friend. We were at a bar together that night. DeVoe then said he was never charged for Ewell's murder, only for the robbery. I went through all that bullshit, and then they dropped it all because they had no case. I asked DeVoe if he had ever seen Elmer Ewell. I never met the man, he said. Laid out in an 11-page summary, likely written after Petrie gave his statement in 1993, is the police theory of what might have happened. The armed robbery of the Ryan's IGA was one of several heists planned by two suspects in the Truro area in the fall of 1991. The suspects planned to stash firearms and loot in a neutral, remote site. One knew the layout of Ewell's barn and hoped it would be vacant at night before 4.15 a.m. After the armed robbery, the suspects disposed of evidence and strengthened their alibis by drinking in bars in the Truro area. Then they headed to Ewell's barn to divide the proceeds of the robbery, said police. They thought it would be vacant in the early hours of October 26th, except it wasn't. Yule was there, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. If he walked in 20 minutes earlier or half an hour later, it's probable nothing would have happened on that farm, RCMP Corporal Ken Walker said in an article in 1999. It was unfortunately just a case of bad timing. Paley retired in 2006, and Ewell's murder investigation remains open. But police work on the case is down to a single officer assigned to take tips. As the years pass, the likelihood of justice for Ewell and his family fades. Ewell's last living sister, Georgina, now 90, is bitter. Even if they had shot him face to face, I don't think I would feel quite so bad, she says softly over the phone from her home in Belleville, Ontario but to be shot in the back is just incomprehensible. Ewell's nephew, Ewell McGregor, has driven to Nova Scotia from Toronto multiple times to meet with police and encourage them to keep the investigation alive. A year after his uncle's death, Dana, the son of Ewell's youngest sibling, took ownership of the farm. It eventually fell into disuse. The Ewell family no longer congregates in the summer, 
If they come at all, they visit the cemetery where Hazel, who died of pneumonia two years after Yule was killed, lies next to her husband. Their granite headstone is etched with an image of Elm Knoll Farm, the white farmhouse where Yule was born, and the barn where he was shot dead. Many in these parts think they know who killed Yule, and some theories resemble the one police formulated. Years ago, when the wound was still raw, the talk turned grim toward meeting out justice the old-fashioned way in a cabin back in the woods. But good sense prevailed and most people have gotten on with their lives. The former Ryan's IGA manager, now 77, is retired. He rarely thinks about the night he was held up at gunpoint, but when he does, he feels blessed. He knows he could have faced the same fate as Yule that night. Yule's neighbors, the Blauendrats, have also retired. One day last spring, Betty looked out the burgundy and white curtains of her kitchen window to where a half-dozen deer grazed on young grass, and she shuddered. That field is where Yule's killer likely trod. And, she reminded herself, maybe he's still out there. That was an article titled Murder in Old Barns by Lindsay Jones from the June issue of The Walrus. I'm Paul Berry. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Sam Robinson and Bill Shackleton. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.